0: They say that in the case of mysterious deaths, the first 48 hours are critical. If investigators can't make a breakthrough in that time, their chances of resolving the case are greatly diminished. But what if they don't make a breakthrough in the first 48 hours? Or the first 48 days? What if you don't make a breakthrough in 48 years? Welcome to the mysterious case of Fred the Head and one of the U.K.'s most baffling unsolved crimes. Episode 37, Another Year Quite a few people have requested a recap episode where we try and encapsulate the story so far into one episode of about an hour in duration and this is that hour. Essentially I've tried to distill the previous 36 episodes into the key salient points. I've re-listened to all 36 and apart from noticing how my style has changed over the last two years it's amazing just how much has been covered how many points have been made and it's been a very useful process for me to look at the whole thing again because as humans we tend to focus on the latest thoughts this idea of recency bias so this has been a good opportunity to see everything side by side so here goes a whistle stop tour of Fred Now, inevitably, with so much information, there could be important points that I skip over because we will be moving quite quickly. But for me as well, the journey is just as interesting as what we actually find out and we are going to be missing much of the journey from this podcast and all the paths to the discoveries that we made. It's really just about trying to distill down to the facts. so. Without further ado, let's get to work. It all begins on the evening of Friday the 26th of March 1971, probably around 5pm. David Nathan crosses a wooden bridge with a gun to shoot pigeons on Bass's Meadow, which is a short distance away from the jewellers and gunsmiths he runs with Garth Hamp Gopsel. Garth is at the Boys grammar School teaching boys how to shoot. David is alone. There's no dog that's the first commonly held mistake, including by the police. He's completely on his own. Now as he's clambering up the bank to get in a good shooting position, he sees something at the corner of his eye. It turns out to be the very top of a skull, and covered in the soil. Now. He's at the side of an old kiln in a small thicket of trees between the River Trent and Bass's Meadow proper. He goes back to the workshop for a spade, digs around the skull and unearths it. Now almost immediately mysteries start to appear because although David Nathan is a special constable so that's kind of like an auxiliary policeman he doesn't ring the police. Instead he calls his business partner Garth Hamp Gopsel at the school. Now that's easier said than done. Remember there were no mobile phones in those days. He would have had to ring the school reception and remember this is late on a Friday. They would have to locate Garth. Garth would probably have to come to the phone and then Garth would have to return back to the workshop. That process I would imagine took 45 minutes to an hour. Garth returns and together they inspect the head and in so doing notice pinkness in the mouth that's probably the dental plate eventually they decide to call the police and it's only then does the official investigation begin probably an hour and a half after the body was found early rumours circulate around Burton that a woman has been killed the scene is cordoned off But with light rapidly fading by now the extraction process is postponed until the next morning. At this point I believe the police separated the head from the body ostensibly to protect the head from damage by scavengers. Still seems a strange thing to do. It's the second in a constant stream of strange occurrences in relation to this case. The next day the body is fully recovered. It's virtually naked, the hands are tied by a piece of twine. The ankles are also bound by twine. And there's a third piece of twine, the same polypropylene twine, tied between the two. The only notable evidence is a pair of fawn, some would say pink or yellow, socks and a 9 carat gold wedding ring, worn on the right hand wedding ring finger. There are no wounds, no sign of any struggle. The body, rather than lying straight in a shallow grave, is in a kneeling position in a hole. The hands are behind his back. The grave dug into the side of a brick kiln. Now why? Well, One possibility is that the flat area in that thicket had been used for industrial purposes for centuries. It may have been littered with brickwork and foundations that made it very difficult to dig. The bank of soil next to the kiln may have been a far easier dig than the level ground. But what it does mean is if that's the case it kind of means the person who buried Fred had probably planned exactly where he was going to bury him long before. And One thing was clear. That choice of burial spot was no accident. It's really only accessible by four means. Crossing the wooden bridge, about 50 yards away. Crossing the weir, a dangerous preoccupation, about 200 yards away. Coming across Bass's Meadow, now that would involve on foot a one mile hike from the entrance to Bass's Meadow but it could be accessed by car. And The fourth option of course is by the river, now the river did flow quite close to where Fred was found. What we do know is that the spot was extremely rarely visited. Access by the bridge was restricted by gates on the Newton Road side of the bridge. But we know now that there are at least four keys. One at the mill. One with the mill owner. One with David Nathan and Garth Happ And one with a nearby farm. Now the mill is interesting. Greensmith's mill. It's a flour mill, a big, ranging set of buildings, located about 100 yards from the burial site. It's been noted by a number of people that the gate on the Newton Road side of the bridge could be unlocked by hand, but you'd have to negotiate your way round the gate and unlock it from the other side. There was no gate on the Bass's Meadow side of that bridge. But whoever killed Fred, knew that site. They knew how they could access it, they knew the escape routes and they knew that the chances of discovery were extremely low. The perfect deposition site, very unlikely ever to be found. And I think it is significant that the body is buried at all. Most murderers don't bury bodies. Murderers only bury bodies for one reason either to eliminate the possibility or to postpone indefinitely the discovery of the body providing them a window of time and space in which they can escape. It takes considerable physical effort and risk to bury a body and has to be a payoff for doing it and that payoff is that time and space between the point of murder and the point of discovery time to get as far away as possible from the murder scene so what facts do we know about the body well fred was assessed to have been between around 23 to 39 It'd be 5 foot 7 to 5 foot 8 slim with short light brown hair well manicured hands doesn't seem to be a manual laborer an extensive dentistry particularly extensive for someone of a relatively young age. The ring he was wearing was made in Birmingham in the 12 months between July 1967 and June 1968. This means Fred's death could not predate this. We must also allow time for the manufacturer to sell the ring to the retailer and then the retailer to sell it to Fred. So it's likely to add on 6 to 12 months from the date of manufacture to the date of it being actually purchased. The body was estimated to have been in the ground for between 9 to 18 months. Although we've got to be careful with some of the scientific methods of 50 years ago so it's probably sensible to extend that a little. But to me it seems almost certain that Fred was killed somewhere between Spring 1969 and Summer 1970. The socks were a part of a batch made in Leicester, Leicester's about 30 miles away from Burton one policeman remembers similar socks being sold on Burton market. Now just because they were sold on Burton market doesn't mean Fred bought them on Burton market they could be bought anywhere lest there was a major sock manufacturing industry centre at the time. And by the way that same analysis applies to the ring. Just because it was made in Birmingham it doesn't mean that it was bought locally. Birmingham jewellery quarter supplied much of the UK's jewellery. We do know where the twine came from. It was traced to a Yorkshire firm. It was polypropylene. Now polypropylene at the time was relatively new to the market. It was replacing sisal which is the old natural fibre used in twine and it was used in many industrial purposes. It would have been used in farming. It would have been used in construction. It would have been used in milling. Fred's hair is of interest to me. It was much shorter than was common in the UK in 1971 where long hair over the ears over the collar was the norm, certainly for a younger man in their 20s. What did that short hair length signify? Was he in an occupation where long hair was still frowned upon? Did he come from a country where long hair hadn't quite become the cultural norm? Or did he have short hair for another reason? There was also An underbite, a Habsburg jaw, where the lower jaw protruded further than the upper, giving the appearance at the very least of a very strong dominant lower jaw to his facial features. For the police, the key to this conundrum of who Fred was was going to be found in two ways. The dentistry, they were certain they'd be able to trace the dental records, and secondly missing people. Missing people with the same dentistry that was going to be Fred, and they spent the next 2-3 to years following those trails. Unfortunately, neither of those things yielded any positive results. Many people have suggested, myself included, that the investigation by the police was flawed. There was an over tendency to rely on dentistry and missing people. No one at the mill was ever questioned. No one who left the scene shortly after Fred was killed was ever traced. There are persistent rumours, unsubstantiated at this point by me, that the investigation was actively closed down, that senior suits arrived at Burton and gave instruction to the officers that this investigation was to go no further. Whatever happened, the investigation got nowhere, and about 3 years later the coroner recorded an open verdict, not murder, an open verdict, suggesting in fact that it's most likely that Fred was killed as part of a sexual act that had gone horribly wrong. There wasn't a great deal of evidence to point towards that, he seemed to associate the twine with that explanation. But the open verdict was recorded in 1974 and the case was essentially forgotten. But the one thing it is absolutely clear was Fred didn't bury himself. Someone else was definitely involved in this. The police always believed this to be a murder, though. In fact, when we interviewed the senior crime officer who dug Fred out, he described it as an execution. So the police were not buying for a second that this was a sexual encounter that had gone wrong, and I think. In that regard, they were absolutely right. And of course if the local police's efforts to solve this murder were curtailed by senior people from London, an explanation that this was simply a sexual act gone wrong might have been the perfect cover to bury this case. A case of move along, there's nothing to see here. So Fred remained, unnamed and unclaimed and the perpetrator had quite literally got away with murder. Over the next 35 years there were no significant breakthroughs. Some missing people were investigated and eliminated. A facial reconstruction was completed that revealed the presence of torticollis and muscular deformity to the neck that meant that the head may have hung slightly to one side. In around 2015 the police decided to bury the head with the rest of the body. The head had been kept separately in a box at Police HQ. That's what gave rise the name Fred the Head. But it was determined at that point that the body needed to be buried altogether. Before they did this they asked the University of Derby to produce a 3D printed copy of the skull. Which they did. Now they also ran that skull through a system called Cranid. A system based on the high correlation that exists between geographical location and cranial morphology. This system would infer where Fred came from geographically. Now, in 1971, Burton upon Trent was not the most widely diverse population imaginable. The vast majority of people were of English descent. However, The cranid system revealed the strong possibility that that skull was of Central European origin, the regions around Hungary or Denmark being likely. Now, To this day, I'm not sure whether the police have ever acted upon that information, or even that they're aware that that analysis was done. I have never ever heard it mentioned by the police, but of course it could be and it probably is very, very significant. Its potential significance grew when we started to look more deeply at Greensmith's Mill and who was working there in 1969 and 1970. And we were able to find a number of people who had worked at the mill at the time. One person particularly caught my eye, Frank Kun, a Hungarian who'd been working at the mill from the early 60s who had left very unexpectedly in September 1969 emigrating with his wife Valtraud and daughter Zoe to make a new life 12,000 miles away in Australia. Frank was a roller man. Now that's one of the more senior positions on a shift. That's why he lived in that house 126 Newton Road. You couldn't live there without working in a fairly senior position at the mill. Now Frank had the run of the place particularly at weekends because the mill didn't work at weekends so did Zoe and he had access to all areas including the deposition site. That deposition site would have been an area known to people working at the mill because it was directly connected to the mill via the weir. You walk across the weir from the mill you get to the deposition site and that weir was a vital piece of mill infrastructure that needed to be cleared in the event of any debris becoming lodged on the top of the weir because that would affect the water flow. So that required mill workers and Frank to cross that locked bridge in order to do that. Where they'd be working to clear it on that side was the deposition site. We also know from an earlier conversation with Zoe that Frank quite often worked over on that area, trying to improve the water power. By this time the mill was on electricity, but Frank had said to Zoe that because of power cuts, they wanted to have a situation whereby it could revert to water power if necessary. A claim that's disputed by the son of the manager of the mill, who we've spoken to. And the other significant thing about that is that There weren't any electricity cuts in the 1960s. That only began in about 1975. So Frank was talking to Zoe about because of electricity shortages we needed to get the water power operational again. That doesn't really make any sense because there weren't any electricity shortages in the 1960s. Frank and his family, Valtraud and Zoe, leave in September 1969 after applying to Canada, South Africa, New Zealand and Australia. Australia comes through first and off they go to build a new life. Somewhat unexpectedly certainly Zoe's friends didn't know about it and Frank's work colleagues didn't know about it. So the house 126 Newton Road is empty or is it? And we say that because we discover buried in the Burton newspaper archives evidence that someone else was living there and in fact someone else goes missing from that very house only a few months later. That man is Matthew James Jackson. 34 years of age, 6 foot 1, well built, ginger haired moustache so he's not the victim. But it's intriguing. Matthew James Jackson seems like a very common name, except it isn't. There are very, very few Matthews born in 1936, and we are able to track him down. He dies on the south coast much, much later. But his backstory is interesting, and we find and speak with his ex-wife, a wonderful woman called Velia Jackson, who becomes one of the most memorable characters in this whole investigation. And the picture she paints of my and the picture she paints of Matthew James Jackson is of a violent criminal. Someone who doesn't hang around for long after he's committed his crimes. Matthew James Jackson is a mystery. It's a mystery that he was living in that house. It's a mystery in terms of who he was living with, why he was allowed to live in that house, because it doesn't seem like he was working at the mill. And why did he leave so abruptly, right at the point at which Fred could have been killed? I was able to track down his sister who I spoke to, but she made it very clear she didn't want to speak to me. In fact she remains the only person in this whole investigation who's ever put the phone down on me. So Matthew James Jackson is a significant person of interest. And there's a new piece of information about Matthew James Jackson that we wanted to share with you. In early December 1972, a man is admitted to Bristol Royal Infirmary, suffering from memory loss. He's there for 10 days, nobody knows who he is, he has no idea who he is himself. Eventually that man's identified as Matthew James Jackson from Burton-upon-Trent. That's nearly two years since he went missing and probably three years since Fred was killed. Now what was Matthew James Jackson doing in that period of time and what caused Matthew James Jackson to completely lose his memory? There's someone else we can't ignore that's in the vicinity. A man called Anthony Hardy. Born and living in Winshill, he's around 18 at the time of Fred's death. Hardy would go on to kill at least three women in the early 2000s, and probably had killed plenty more before that. Those killings happened in London though. That's a long way away in time and distance from 1970 Winshill. But he was there, and he clearly had the capacity for murder. Winsil's not a big place, and we have a future serial killer amongst the population. Now There are arguments for and against his involvement. The most powerful argument against was that it really wasn't his MO. Hardy killed women. Senior investigators have ruled him out purely on that basis. But certain things do point to Hardy. He dressed his known victims and socks featured in that ritual. He killed leaving absolutely no discernible injuries. In fact so much so that his first actual victim was a thought to have died from a heart attack. That's why he was freed to kill again. He suffocated his victims and Fred had no discernible injuries. So Hardy can't be ignored but there's much much more work to do in connection with him. Now I want to return to Frank Cunn. We were able to track down his daughter living off grid in a converted bus in the Outback in Australia. That was nothing short of a miracle. The other miracle was that she had such remarkable powers of recollection. Some have suggested that she may be a little bit too eager to tell me what she thinks I want to hear. But there's no doubt her memories tend to be very accurate. Because we know she left in 1969, any memory of Winshill must be from the time of Around the Murder. and That's very useful. One of her most striking memories involved a car journey with her father Frank. Frank was by training a hairdresser and at the weekend he worked at Peter Graham's hairdressers on the High Street in Burton owned by Peter and Graham Stone. This was probably in early 1969, Zoe unexpectedly went to see a father at the hairdressers on her way back from the library to ask for a lift home in the family car. But there was someone else waiting for a lift from Frank. A young central European man, strikingly matching the description of Fred who lived on the level the row of shops at the top of Bearwood Hill Road in Winds Hill about a mile from Frank's house. After dropping him off, Frank warned Zoe never to mention that journey with that man. Why? Frank said it was because the man was a cross-dresser, Zoe may see him in women's clothes and to never approach him if she did, and that Zoe's mum Valtraud would not appreciate Frank being in the company of such people. But why the secrecy? And it must have been pretty concerning to Frank to mention it to a 9 year old Zoe. In terms that she remembers it vividly to this day. And if he was so worried about that man, exactly how far would Frank go in order that Valtroud didn't find out? We also know that later that year, that same year, Zoe and her mother, Valtroud, left Frank to visit Germany for a few weeks. There was definitely a period of time when Frank was on his own. At a time that could correspond to when Fred died. It might be nothing, it might be entirely coincidental, but it exists and therefore we have to include it in all the aspects of the investigation. About 12 months ago, another possibility emerged, and for a while it looked very promising. I was contacted by a man that claimed to know the full story the how, the when, the why, and the where. Fred was killed. It seemed perfect if a little far-fetched. But the people he claimed to have been involved were his own family and that's a claim no one can dismiss lightly. He'd approached the police, he'd been interviewed by the police but he'd not been recontacted by the police. And in a 50 year old case information like this just can't be ignored so we went through A process of trying to establish the truth of that story as it was told to us. Some things checked out. The family relationships. The presence of a man that had told him. A fellow called George Robinson. We found him. He would existed. He lived in a shack with his dogs on the River Trent. But in a way they're the easy things to get right. He knew those people existed so they were going to check out. The problem was and is. Specific details about the story were far more difficult to verify. Mr A, this supposed perpetrator, definitely existed, but the victims, these men from the northeast the names that were given to us, definitely didn't. And the bar for us committing wholeheartedly to this account needed to be high, and that story never quite got to sufficient height. Now I'm still in contact with the man who told me that story, I've not completely given up on it and I like him, I've met him many times, in fact quite recently I met him again with Ian there and he's very convincing but his story has changed now from the original story in the podcast, the three men from the northeast are now foreign agents. Now to be fair. He told us this before the recent episode on Frank Kunn that was suggesting an espionage aspect to it, so it definitely wasn't a reaction to that. His explanation for the change of story to this new version, and by the way, I haven't covered that on the podcast yet, was that the new story would be so far-fetched, I wouldn't believe it. His strategy backfired somewhat, because I was never really convinced about the original story, never mind this new one and also I have difficulty with people telling me something and then completely changing it and expecting me to believe the changed version maybe we'll produce a podcast on that new story at some point but I'm only going to trouble you with that if I think there's a realistic prospect of it being true so far although we've done quite a lot of work on it there's no evidence that it is now is my belief in a version of this story completely dead no but it's on life support where we write to investigate it fully, 100%. Every possibility, especially when it looked as potentially promising as this one, has to be investigated fully. I have no regrets about that. Most recently, we found out a little bit more about Frank Kun's time travelling around the world between 1945 and 1951, the period of time that he's caught by the Russians and the time he appears in the UK. At the very least, they're suspicious. Because that's a time when it was virtually impossible to visit the places he visited without a passport and just on Russian papers. There seems to me more to that than meets the eye. He was travelling with a tiny miniaturised Russian made camera. It makes me wonder, what was Frank Cunn really up to? But that's about it, but they're just my thoughts. I thought I'd also check in with Joe and Ian to gather their ideas on what we know so far and which directions we needed to head off in as we enter 2023. So uh, what I want to do is kind of come together and have a conversation around where we feel we are with the investigation and where we think we can go further forward. coming to you first joe obviously you've been you've been with this from day one when you think back to the investigation what are the areas you think are, are, are proving to be important
1: hmm well i think my first thought is um the smithsonian forensic findings the smithsonian in washington did some forensic work on um the the the, the body they yeah. examined the pelvic bones and um I find it really interesting that they were so precise on his age. They said that he was 29 years and two months at the time of death, which would mean he was born around 42. They said that he died between 9 and 12 months before he was discovered. found in 71, in March 71. So he yeah. was killed. If we stay with the Smithsonian, hmm. just a point of argument, he was killed um, between, let's say, March to July 70. The reason I find that so interesting is, to me, it makes Matthew James Jackson a greater person of interest than Frank Kuhn, As Jackson was reported missing in, I think it was February 70.
2: He was.
1: Which, yeah, according to the Smithsonian, is around the time of the murder. Whereas with, with Frank, Zoe says he started looking to migrate, let's say, early 69. And they arrived in Australia October 69. So anything that spooked Frank, I, I'm not so sure it was to do with uh, with Fred.
0: I've always understood it to be nine to 18 months. So Is, is that the same as you? No, I,
1: I, I found nine to 12 months. I, I, I mean, that
0: seems very, very narrow.
1: It is. I mean, I might have to go back because when I read the newspapers, because my eyesight is not great, Mm. I could have misread that. So I will go back to it. Um, Mm. But I was pretty sure it was 9 to 12.
0: Okay. So if we're going with the Smithsonian on that, they're they're Mm. saying a very narrow window of death, very narrow, 9 to 12 months, three month window. And if it is that three month window, essentially that makes it 1970. And that makes it actually. July, March
1: to July, 1970. Yeah. But, but that... I know, I know Jackson went missing in February. February. So I'm giving it a month's te- a month's 10 sh- uh, tolerance. Sorry, the word is tolerance. Yes. I mean, I will go back to those newspapers because I'm sorry, if I'm sorry if it's nine to 18. So that yes. was
3: my first thought. Well, can I, uh, can I add my thoughts on Matthew James Jackson, Ken? He, uh-huh. he was number three on my list after Hardy, after the ring of what I thought, having listened to the first series, there was the most work to do on. I'm quite intrigued by the report that you've very recently found of him turning up in Bristol with his memory loss a year or two later. More pertinent questions on our case, I think. What on earth is he doing living in Frank Kun's house? Was he connected to the mill? We still haven't traced who it was who reported that he was missing because there was a woman in there as well yeah, who reported him right. missing. Right. And where did he go when he vanished? And why did he go obviously on that particular time? That's a really pertinent question. And that's a long period, isn't it?
0: Because I, I think it's it's two years, virtually two years after he goes missing, to when mm. he turns up again. That's a long time to be, to have no memory. The reason Bristol's interesting is it's a direct the train line from Burton to Bristol. He might have hopped on the train and he'd end up in Bristol. That's
3: I mean, what about what about doing something terrible and having some sort of mental breakdown and yeah. disappearing off and yeah. losing his memory from that?
2: Yep, yeah. that yeah. might
3: be a bit Hollywood, but these things do happen. Yep.
2: Yeah. No,
0: I'd agree with that. I think my Matthew James Jackson is uh, is definitely definitely in the mix. Uh, Joe, just coming back to you. Then is there any uh, any any other thoughts uh, that spring to mind for you?
1: Oh, yes, yes. Um, I do often go back to um, the forensic description about Fred's well-kept short fingernails and his short hair. (laughs) And to me, that does indicate to me he was a cross-dresser. The short hair for the wearing of the wigs, the nails for general appearance, I'm not sure he was in the entertainment industry, as someone would have inquired as to his whereabouts. Mind you, they might not have asked the police, so not ruling out the entertainment industry.
0: It's a very transient industry, isn't it? People are zipping all over the country, fulfilling their bookings.
1: But as he wasn't officially reported missing to the police, I'm quite convinced, actually, that Fred was not reported as missing. He may well have been a bit of a loner, you know, living on the fringes, I suppose, like you've just said. And I don't think he was married. I mean, the ring may have been some sort of symbol. You know, he may well have been gay or, you know, part of the LBQT community. And actually, his killing was possibly what we would today call a hate crime. Someone because of their ethnicity or subculture or sexual orientation, for example. Yeah, so I've been thinking a lot about that. I think it's the well-kept short fingernails that, and the short hair, you know, it just makes me feel he was um, a cross-dresser, that he needed to be able to dress like a woman easily.
3: I'm not so convinced as strongly as Joe is about about that. However, I have, as number five, when I originally looked at it, was investigation into the female impersonator. And of course, he's closely tied in with Frank, closely tied, therefore in with the mill. And what I think we've not drilled down into at all, and yet there's lots of bits that I've picked up where the people at the mill, which you say never got questioned by the police, they're in the frame to know what is going on. I mean, apart from anything that, that we might think Frank was involved in, they know, they know where the site is, and this site is definitely one that has been earmarked for this. Mm. You also, which I I only got back very recently when, when listening back to stuff, he's tied with polypropylene twine. Yeah. Yes. And you whizzed through saying it was quite new, come from Yorkshire, used in flower milling.
0: Well, the reason I raised that was to to be honest, was just to make sure the mill was included in people's thinking. It was used in lots of different industries. Polypropylene had replaced sisal as yeah. the uh, the material that twine was made of. And tw- sisal is a natural product. Of course, polypropylene isn't. And therefore, polypropylene is less subject to decay. Sisal, natural, natural thing yeah. is. And, and therefore, in a food manufacturing environment, it would be preferable because... You know, the chances of rotting, the chances of being eaten by rodents is significantly lower. So I could imagine it being used in the mill. It would be mm. used in the mill, uh, particularly if, you know, for baling, even sacks, baling sacks. Mm. Uh, that's the kind of thing it would be useful. So, yeah. Okay. Interesting. Joe. any more?
1: Can There's I just re- m- mention something about, about the flour mill that um... – that they, you know, the police didn't seem to concentrate on the flour mill, and um, and I noticed that in some newspaper reports, uh, first of all, they were calling it the old Flint Mill murder, and the police seemed to be a sort of obsessed with the idea that the murder was something to do with the defunct old Flint Mill, um, which is, not and the I think, case. no, not at all. So that was a red herring for them, but. Yeah. That's just an aside, but I did notice that they called it the old flint mill murder.
3: Is that not because the brickworks is attached to the old flint mill, though? Is yeah. that not just... The
0: kiln that it was found next to was on the site of the old flint mill. But if they, I know they were looking for things like layouts of the old flint mill, absolutely irrelevant. The, the flint mill wasn't used after 1948, so therefore it had no relevance in terms of the murder, apart from it was the site.
1: I think it distracted them, I really do yeah the uh, last last thought um i had was that i had been concerned that, that fred was the contracted laborer who apparently went missing i think 19 in the 1970 1970 when work was being done on the sluice valve the pen yeah. stock uh, general descaling from workshop yeah. was servicing close yeah. to the deposition site now i know it's been hard to follow up on this now, the labors may have been casual, probably were, possibly didn't e- even live in WorkSop. Though I did look at the marriages, as you know, uh, in WorkSop, couldn't find anything o- of relevance. But the one thing is, though, I keep going back to it, is his well-kept nail. Don't think a Labourer working on bowl would have had well-kept nails. I'm ambivalent on the WorkSop one. but
0: I agree, but I don't think the personality we're looking at in Fred, clearly not a manual worker, it just doesn't fit that person disappearing from a sewage contractor. It just doesn't no. for me. No. Uh, okay, interesting. Was that is that your list, Joe? Because that's a very interesting start to this conversation. If it is,
1: yes, it is, sir.
0: So, Ian, I mean, what, what's your thoughts? Where do you think? Where do you think we need to turn to next?
3: Well, this is sort of like a, a collection of thoughts on areas we didn't drill down enough in yet. Areas we have discovered we don't think have made it into the podcast yet, which I think we need to to look at. I also had the guy missing from from the uh, drainage contractors because that's a missing person at the right time. And I take the point that he's got lovely fingernails. If he's a casual worker, it might, it might be that he just has to take the work that he can get offered. And it could be that he has been done in on his second day, let's say. Um, so I wouldn't, rule that out but I, I appreciate you might not want to
0: kind of nail envy on his the parts of his workmates
3: i'm not sure that would be the their prime motivation <laughs> could be that that's what's first mentioned and then it ends up that it is some yeah. hate crime when this when this very feminine man starts working with a bunch of uh your typical superworkers, yeah. let's say i think that's a question over the quality of the police investigation There is a woman reported as being found that suddenly changes into a man the next day oh
2: yeah
3: my question might be are there any missing women at that time Mm. if there is something wrong with the police investigation it's all got to be quietened and closed off why was why would the report that there was a woman i think that's one area where we could do some more investigation and find out where, where that came from who started throwing those stones at the police
0: me and Joe started to look at that a while back, didn't we? Or not a while back, a few weeks ago, Joe, just as a kind of you never know kind of thing. We had a brief look at it. We probably do need to do a bit more work on that.
1: I really didn't think it, it was a woman, and I told you because of the pelvic bones, but it would be fascinating to know why they thought that.
0: It might just have been rumours in the pubs. Someone has said we found a skull, looks like a woman's skull. That's all we know, because remember after the first night, that's all they really had and it may be that had filtered into the community those very right. early indications that short hair small
1: woman's wedding ring
0: well they may not have even seen hands by then but, no. but it might have just have been hey it looks like a woman and that find it, that was enough for that rumor to to fly but but hey we don't know really but it, it's an interesting fact that that was definitely reported in this mm. yeah.
3: on the ring. I was quite disappointed because this was was straight after Hardy. I thought the answer lay in that ring because it lay in the marriages. And we did, I know you and Joe in particular did a lot of work looking at marriages in ever-increasing circles out from Burton. Now, there's a tradition that you will wear the wedding ring on the incorrect hand if your wife has died. What about a guy who doesn't have a wedding ring? But his wife dies, so he buys one, so he can then wear it on the wrong hand. In which case, we might have to sort through a whole load of deaths to see if there were any East European men dying.
0: It's a really interesting idea. Sorting through deaths is—it's not that difficult these days. You know, we, we, no. we do that quite quickly.
1: It's easier than the marriage.
0: That's an interesting idea that this was being worn as an um, in memoriam. Many men at those times didn't have wedding rings. In fact, I don't have a wedding ring, even though I've been married for you know hundred years. But <laughs> but that's that's a good point. Might have even been hers. He may have been one of these really unusual people. Well, we know he had very small hands, you might have been wearing hers. Because then uh, their hands may have matched in size. Point that could be one of the reasons why they never took it off, whoever killed him, because it might have been slightly tight on him and they couldn't get it off.
3: On Tony Hardy, I know we've done a little bit of digging around. and we came to a bit of a halt. However, you talked to some of his contemporaries and you've got different bits and pieces of...
0: Yeah, there's more to tell on Hardy. Yeah, it's not made the podcast of of Hardy as a child. We've got more work to do. That's probably something that we'll come to in a couple of episodes' time, I think.
3: Of course, we we might bring that forward if Dr Richard comes back to me. Are you listening, Dr Richard? (laughs) If you come back to me, we would love to have your thoughts on whether Hardy could have been ready to kill as a teenager rather than wait until he was 50.
0: What we do know, and I don't want to give away the the next bit of the podcast, is is there was evidence of cruelty on his part as a child. Right. That we we pretty know for sure.
3: So, okay, Uh, any more, Ian? Uh, Well, I've got to keep my... um, that Fred is Bible John. He stopped (laughs) murdering just as Fred was killed. Um. I know, I know, I know. It's a Hollywood, a Hollywood ending, but why did Bible John stop killing when he stopped killing?
1: Yes.
0: Hey, I tell you what. If it, if it turns out to be Bible John, I mean, you'll be able to point at us and laugh. Uh, uh, no, no questions. But I've kind of, uh, somewhere away from that one now. You, mm. you, know, you keep, you keep banging the drum for Bible John because at the end of the day, you know, we know he did kind of go off, drop off the scene. at, about
3: the same time, so well, well, that, that would actually be Fred, and a lot of the other work that we're doing, Matthew, James, Jackson, Anthony Hardy, that's identifying whoever killed this fella. It still doesn't name Fred, yeah. so I'll, I'll cling on to it as the closest we've got to a name for the for Fred himself.
0: Yeah, yeah. I think that's uh, I think that's
1: fair. Going back to the point I made at the beginning about Matthew James Jackson, I've just found um, a later. Um, the open verdict on the Burton mystery, and you're right. By 1974, the Smithsonian have widened their horizons, and they say that they can place his age um, between 23 and 39. That widens it, but then they widen the the how long he'd been dead for, and they say not more than 18 months prior. Yeah the discovery yeah. so you're right so in actual fact that would keep you know if something spooked frank coon that just keeps Kuhn within that that timing
0: in fact both of them because you know officially if we were sticking to nine twelve months that kind of rules out matthew james jackson that's too narrow those three months in fact i i favor widening it slightly more i think it's somewhere between march 69 and summer 70. So that mm-hmm. that's Frank and Matthew James Jackson in that area. Two people yeah. disappeared from the same house unexpectedly. And it could be either. So just to quickly go through a few of mine, I've got four that I've I've jotted down. I, th- I, th- I think I I think I want to do more on. Firstly, you know I've got I have got Frank in my sights a little bit at the moment. And one of the things that we haven't dug into enough but we are going to be able to dig into for the next episode it's this whole situation at the hairdressers. Who was around there? Who was this guy that got the lift? You know, I'm hoping in the course of the next 10 days or so to have a conversation with someone who was very deeply part of of that hairdressing situation. I know already remembers Frank and Valtroud and Zoe. So I've got a feeling, just a feeling at the moment, that there's more to learn about that whole hairdresser place and what was going on there, who was there, and... Did it have anything to do with the person who was living on the level and all these kind of places? I, I want to dig more into that, and I'm going to be able to in the next episode, hopefully. I secondly, think
3: it's your best its your best lead for um, who the female impersonator is.
0: Exactly, exactly. So I want to get around all that. Uh, secondly, I'm interested, again, in why the police closed it down or are reported to close it down. It's very difficult to get into that because it's kind of, I think there's about one person who's kind of suggesting this, but that person has very deep roots in that in the organisation. So he's not saying it lightly, but it's, it's a very sensitive topic. So I'm trying to sensitively deal with that. And I'm hoping, again, fairly quickly, we'll be able to get more definitive information on why that person thinks it was closed down by essentially senior people outside of the Burton area. If that was the case... That's big. It implies a non local situation around this whole killing. So we're gonna we're gonna hopefully find out more about that.
3: I think your suits that would close it down could be senior police officers, but equally could be civil servants, ministry of defence officials. Yeah, special branch, MI5
0: could be anybody. But the very fact that it was, if it was, says something about the murder, I think. And we'll need to but we'll need to know more about that. The third thing that I've been thinking about for a while, and it comes back to revisiting actually in preparation of this podcast, this whole twine thing and how it was, how it was tied. It was tied. There's one, one piece of twine tied in his hands, one piece of twine tied in his ankles, a third piece of twine connecting those two things. Says to me more and more that that's a transportational thing. Someone could then get lifted, put in the back of a car stuff like that
1: yes it's easier to carry somebody like yeah. that
0: i think that's a carrying scenario, scenario rather than uh uh tying someone up so they can't move
3: i just i see that i get that ken however it's very loosely tied though isn't it
0: you if you're carrying a dead body you know, it can be loose if if you're if you're tying someone up to to mean they can't move it's tight
3: you're thinking you're using the twine in between the the twine around the hands and the ankles as a handle to carry this oh, stuff yeah. like a massive kickbag. bag.
0: Yeah, kind of. Yeah, and, and the whole point that it was loose says to me dead already, rather than not dead, and we've got to constrain it.
3: So. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, agreed. I think he, so, I think he was dead when he got to the site. Definitely. Yeah,
0: that's what I'm thinking. And what's making me think further on this is the mill as a murder site. That mill has got rambling areas, pe- areas people never go into, bits of warehousing things that nowhere in at weekends. I mean, it was a big old ramshackle, still is, building. I've got, starting to get a feeling in my mind, he's killed somewhere in the mill. And then, I mean, Frank had a car, but a few people who did, don't want to just point the finger at Frank here, but he did, uh, put in the back of a car. And then having known what that site was and had been allocated for this dead body to end up in, he's then driven the way we went. Where we drove to that site and then drove you drive all the way to the site so i've got this idea of the mill as a murder space and what i want to do try to do is get a proper layout of the mill i've never had one so we can see where everything was in the mill and where things were going on in the mill in 1970.
3: well i I agree entirely ken i've got the mill down as really central to it because that's most likely, where people would know where this deposition site is, and, I, and yet I know we've got one or two names of the people who worked on the shift that Frank was on, but there were two shifts. But you've talked to the guy who was in yes. accounts and did the payroll, and must have those sort of some of those records. So we at least get names to talk to that we can track through, and you know, one or two mill workers from the time might have some very interesting observations to make.
0: I think that we need to go back to that. We need to go first principles on that, get a layout of the mill, find out who was working where on all three stories. I mean, I've seen some of the blueprints of the mill, uh, but they tend to be machinery. I want to see if we can get more on the mill. Uh, I think the fourth, the last thing I've got is, I still think Zoe knows more and I still particularly think Valtrad knows more and uh, Valtrad's still alive. So I think I'm going to make another effort to try and, and I've I've been in email contact with Valtrad, I want to still, I want to go again, try again in terms of getting to understand a bit more about Valtra. And by the way, knowing these other people, particularly the person at the hairdressers who knows, who knew Frank, who knew Valtra, who knew Zoe, might be a way of kind of breaking into that uh, a little bit more successfully. So yeah. they're, the, they're the key things for me. It's been a great year. It's been a really interesting year. We've learned a load of new things. We'll learn a load of new things. I think in 2023. I still, I think we're getting inexorably closer. I just sense that. And it's all to play for in uh, 2023, in my opinion.
3: Well, yeah, absolutely. There's so. still plenty of plenty of rabbit holes to go down. And, you know, at the end of one of these is the answer.
0: I really appreciate all your efforts and your hard work in 2022. As we've all had a million things to do this year. Uh, thanks for your sterling efforts. It's been amazing. Here's looking forward to an uh, amazing 12 months in the next year.
3: Thanks, Ken. Thanks, Joe. Thanks, Ian. See you later bye
0: bye. -bye. so that was the recap episode hope you enjoyed it it certainly made me think again about a few things which I found really useful and maybe you've seen something relevant and if you have you make sure you let us know our appetite for solving this has never been more intense we've got another year ahead of us now of this mystery unravelling right before our eyes so I very much hope you stay with it every step of the way Have a great new year, I know I'm looking forward to it, because together we will crack this. And I'm going to leave you with a slightly different ending this week, but this is the same. Until next time, have a good one.
2: It was a lonely death by the river They found you sleeping among the trees With your arms tied against your narrow back Pleading with them on your knees And I don't know what your game was Don't know if you were good or bad But that resting stone we all deserve I'll get the one you never had Ooh, 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 ooh. Who are you running from? Now I got you, and all are you running done now I got you all oh. There was a lonely death by the river There were no traces ever found And no records kept And no grieving wife No fight, no wounds, no sound And I don't know who your folks were Don't even know where they're from They can take this song as a sacred vow I'll find the man who killed your son Ooh, 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 ooh. Who are you running from? Now I got you. You've got your secrets, I've got mine. Just better at keeping up. Oh, you're better at keeping up. Oh, you're better at keeping up. Was it a lonely death by the river? You really thought we'd forgotten you Well you lost your name, but I'll get it back If it's the last thing I do And I don't know why I got this task Maybe it was meant to be Why did I go looking for you? Or well, really where you looking for What was I running from? Now you got me, all of my runnings done Now I got you, all of my runnings done Oh, how I got you